Well, good morning. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Um, today we'll be going through verses 19 through 25. Um, and as we've been going through Galatians, we've been seeing an ongoing theme that Paul has been trying to stress. And the theme um, that he keeps bringing up over and over again is that justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And um, as you read through it, a lot of people would think, you know, okay, I understand it, that salvation can only be by faith. There is no other way in which uh, an ungodly sinner could be declared righteous before God. That is the only way. And yet, we know that Paul continually stresses this point over and over and over again. And as we're reading it, um, sometimes people think, you know, that's, that's enough for me. I'm sold on it. I, I agree. I, I believe this. But we have to keep in mind that the gospel constantly is under attack. Constantly people are saying and opposing it, saying that it is not only by faith alone. It is faith plus circumcision. It is faith plus doing good works, being a good enough person. It is faith plus keeping the law. And constantly we see that even in Paul's day as well as our day today, people are always challenging the gospel and saying that this is not true. There is more that is necessary. You're foolish to think that somehow it could be as simple as just believing by faith. And uh, keep in mind, too, that this book is being written to believers, believers who were saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Paul had presented uh, all of this to them. And, and he's, he says in Galatians earlier in this, in this chapter and, and before this that he is amazed at how quickly they have turned away he says that they've been bewitched, they've been fooled into believing that somehow they could be saved by some other means. So if a believer who has come to know the Lord through faith can be fooled into it, we have to keep in mind that Paul is again reminding us so that we as believers stand firm in the truths that we know. So that we remind ourselves in what we stand for and, and what we came to believe as Christians. That salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We, uh, we see Paul uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout this chapter actually explaining in the Old Testament and how, uh, just pointing back to a story of Abram's life and how he came to know the Lord. And, and we pick up this encounter in Genesis 15. Uh, Abram, as we know, was unable to have any, you know, him and his wife, uh, unable to have any children. And God made this promise to him. And we pick up in uh, Genesis 15, verse 5, and it says, Then he brought him, that is Abram, outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him as righteousness. So in this Old Testament encounter, how was it that a man was saved? How was it that they were declared righteous. They were justified, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law, because the law didn't even exist at this time. It was on the basis of faith. Faith in what God had promised him, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And um, we look at uh, these, these usage of the Old Testament, we realize that the same that was true for them is also the same that's true for today. 
salvation is still on the basis of faith alone in Jesus Christ. But we know, as I said, that the law was later implemented. The law was implemented 300, or 430 years later. And so when the law was introduced, you had then people coming and say, okay, the promise was for a time. It came for a specific time in those days. But now with the law being introduced, it is God's promise to him and his seed. And now it is that promise plus something else. And people are pushing that somehow that the law being implemented changed God's promises, that his promises are not the same as they used to be, that it's still by faith, but it's faith plus something else, by keeping the law. And uh, as we're going to go through this chapter, and as we talked about last week, there is nothing that the law can do to change or annul or void God's promises. God's promises will remain firm. They will always hold true. So this really brings us to the question then, what purpose then does the law serve? What is the point of the law? If it doesn't change God's promises, if God's promise to Abram and his seed still remain true, then what is the purpose of the law? So we'll pick up uh, and, and start reading in verse 19 of chapter 3. And we'll uh, see that very reason of why we were given the law. We read in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scriptures has confined all under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith came, we are no longer under a tutor. So the question again we're looking at is, what is the purpose then of the law? And really the first purpose that we see is that the law revealed sin as a transgression, or it revealed it as a, a violation of a known law. And this is not to say that sin did not exist before the law was implemented. Clearly we know that Mankind sinned before the law was instituted, but it clearly showed man what was pleasing and displeasing before the Lord. It showed God's intentions. It showed what uh, he desired of mankind, not only just based on their actions or their deeds, but also down to their motives and their intents of the heart. And to try and uh, illustrate this, I want you to uh, imagine a world where... There is no laws for how to drive. You, you get up one day and you get on the road. There's no traffic signs. There's no stop lights. There's no stop signs. There's no lines to divide uh, the road. There's no shoulders. Uh, there's no speed limits at all. And uh, you, you would imagine that as you're driving along the road, it'd be fairly reckless. You'd, <laughs> you'd probably see uh, just utter chaos on the road. And uh, to fix this problem, the government then implements the laws. They put into place rules. You start seeing stop signs put up. You see traffic lights. You start seeing 
lines to divide the road, you start seeing um, speed limit signs. And they do this to ensure that you arrive from point A to point B safely, that everyone abides by these rules and that keeps them. And you would assume that there should be no problem. There should never be anyone breaking these laws. Nobody should have issues now that there's laws in place. But we know that people, even with laws, still break them. We know that they still uh, will not keep the laws. I remember when I was 18, I got my uh, one and only speeding ticket. I was uh, going down uh, uh, this pretty steep incline, and the speed limit said 30 miles per hour. And there was even a, uh, a digital radar that says, slow down, slow down. And then it said, you know, 45 or 50 or whatever it was. And uh, I just felt like, well, no brakes. So <laughs> I just kept going down the hill. And sure enough, at the very bottom of it, uh, there's a police with a radar gun. And uh, he clocked me in, and he turns on his sirens. And we pull over the shoulder, and he says, all right, driver's license and registration, please. And I handed over to him. And he asked me, um, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, I do. And, and he said, and did you see? <laughs> Did you see the speed limit sign? Did you see that? Did you know that there was a sign there saying it was 30? I said, I did. And, uh, and so he, he shortly after that goes back to his car and he fills out a ticket and he gives it to me and we go on our way. Um, and I couldn't tell him that, well, you know, I, I didn't speed before that. There was, you know, I drove two hours before that and there was no issues. And, you know, six months before that I had a clean traffic, you know, driving record and it didn't matter. There was a law that I shouldn't be speeding more than 30 miles per hour, and I went 50 plus, and that's the end of the story. You cannot change it. You cannot say that somehow retroactively I was better in the past or that somehow I'll drive better in the past. I broke the law. There was a clear law laid out, do not speed, and I transgressed against it. And by having that law in place, I knew that I disobeyed it. It was a known law. I violated it. And uh, in the same way, uh, the law of Moses uh, clearly laid out, like I said, what things were pleasing to God, what things were displeasing to God. And when they were implemented, they were never to sh show us our righteousness. They were just to show us that before God, we were unable, we were unrighteous, uh, wicked people, unable to keep God's holy and moral standards in his law. So that was the very first thing. It revealed sin as a transgression. Uh, the next thing that we learn about the law is that the law uh, was given for a temporary time until Christ would come. We read in verse 19 that the law it was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And that seed that it's speaking of is Jesus Christ. The law, it would be implemented until a time when Christ would come and fulfill it. And in uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the laws and prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And you might expect that a leader, uh, or Jesus Christ coming into this, this world, he would reject the law and say, It's no longer applicable. But we see that's not the case with the Lord. He, he came to fulfill every single part of the law, down to the dotting of the I, the crossing of the T. He fulfilled it. 
He said that it would not pass away until it was fulfilled, and Jesus Christ did that very thing, completing it, uh, completely fulfilling it uh, absolutely perfectly. Uh, the law, again, revealed to us our own sinfulness. It revealed to us that we were guilty lawbreakers. And as a result, um, there's a punishment. Just like there's a punishment for me speeding, I got a ticket. I was punished for that. I had to pay a couple hundred dollars. Um, as a result, though, of our sin, to an even greater extent, there is a punishment. There's death. And not just physical death, but eternal separation from God forever. Even if you've only broken one law, you can't, like I said, I, I could, can't just say, I only broke it one time, I'll be good after that. By breaking the law once, it says in James that whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. So death is required whether you've broken one law or whether you've broken a hundred laws. And because God is just, because he is holy, he demands payment for your sin. He demands that uh, he sees that debt paid for. And so... Jesus Christ, he came with that very purpose. He came with the purpose to pay the sin debt that you owed. He came to die in place of lawbreakers. He came to die for them, even though he himself never once sinned. He followed the law perfectly, and he was able to fulfill the strict requirements of the law so that a person is no longer under the law, but under grace. And so therefore, the law was only a temporary measure until Christ would come and fulfill it. And uh, as we're looking at this passage, we'll see that the law had its purposes, but it also had some, what I'll call terms and conditions, if you will. Um, and one of this condition is that the covenant was conditional, meaning that um, in Exodus 19, we read that there's a condition between um, two parties. Condition between God on one side and the children of Israel on the other. And the covenant that he made with them was fairly straightforward. You had on one side Israel who had to, in their covenant, obey the Lord and follow his commands fully. And in turn, God would bless them. God would make them a special treasure, as he says, above all people, and before God, they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. On the other hand, if they disobeyed God, God would in turn discipline them. He would punish them. And the children of Israel, without even realizing their own inability to follow God, without even realizing how many times they had failed before this, without even realizing how incapable they were of following God's laws, they all quickly said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so they entered into this covenant with God, saying that we will follow your laws fully. We are going to keep them to the absolute maximum. And as you're reading through Exodus, it doesn't take you long, maybe only a chapter or two, until you find that shortly after that they broke God's law. They disobeyed. They already, before Moses could even come down with the law, in their hearts they were already putting together a golden calf, worshiping someone else. They had already forsaken the Lord whom they said they would follow. <clears throat> and you see that it's not just with the first generation. We see that one generation would come, disobey God, and would be punished. And 
40 years later, the next generation would come on and again would follow away from the, or fall away from the Lord just as their fathers did and disobey God. And the next one, the same thing, would come and serve the Lord and then would fall away and disobey Him. And time and time again, 1,500 years of this cycle where man would say, we will follow you, we'll serve you, and shortly after disobey God. But God had a purpose in including this. He was in including this time and time again to show us that we are incapable of following God's laws. That on our own, we cannot be saved by keeping the law. Righteousness is not obtained by keeping the law because we don't have the power to obey it. The law just showed us how unworthy we are to receive God's grace to us. And that if anything good was to happen to us, it would not be based on our merit, our own good. It would be solely based on Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for us. Picking up in uh, verse 19 of this, uh, the last part of it, it says, And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate only, or for one only, but God is one. So another condition, if you will, of the law is that it required a mediator. And at work, um, we've recently entered into a a covenant or an agreement right now. We're trying to set up a union. And uh, we have on one side, we have two parties that are entering into an agreement with one another. They're entering into a, a contract, uh, promising each other one thing. On one side, we have the hospital administrators. And on the other side, we have the hospital workers. And together, we have agreed to come into this binding contract about wages, about work conditions. We've talked about... Um, unfair treatments and how to deal with that. We've discussed all these things and we're putting together a contract saying that we will abide by these things. And because um, there's two parties coming together, because uh, we need to be kept accountable for these things, uh, because we've had a time where we haven't had a, a mediator between us. Um, so because we, both sides have been unfaithful before, we now have to have a mediator. We have to have someone who's a go-between for us to make sure that this promise that we keep to each other is kept, to make sure that if the hospital administrators say, I'm going to give you this, that they go forward and they actually do those things. And if we say that we will do this for the hospital, that they make sure that we keep our end of the bargain. And if one side disobeys or, or doesn't follow through with their promise, we have a go-between or a mediator who makes sure that these things are kept. And uh, the same thing was true of the covenant um, between... Uh, God and Israel. There was a mediator between God and the children of Israel. We see that Moses, uh, it says in Deuteronomy, stood between the Lord and the children of Israel. So in that sense, Moses would have been the mediator. Um, we read other where, elsewhere that when God delivered the law to Moses, it was through an angel. And in that sense, the angel would have been a mediator between God and Moses. But the point not, is not really who is the mediator. The point is that there was a mediator necessary. That regardless, um, man had to keep their end of the agreement. They had to obey God's laws. And the problem with the law was that it demanded perfect obedience from people who could never give it. From people who are just incapable of doing so. It's from, it demanded obedience from people who historically were rebellious against God, who constantly sinned against him, who were unfaithful to their words, 
And now they're going to try and enter into a contract to actually keep their words, to say that I will fulfill all that the Lord has required. They were unable to. But at the end of verse 20, we see that there's a contrast. And Paul is contrasting the law and the promise that God gave to Abraham. And the difference is that in the promise that God gave to Abraham, God made this promise. He said that I will bless you and your descendants and ultimately through his seed would provide a way of salvation. Jesus Christ would ultimately come from that line and would provide salvation for the whole world. And with this promise, we see that there is only one contracting party. There's only one person entering into an agreement. Abram doesn't say anything. He doesn't promise God anything. God says that regardless of what man will do, regardless of his faithfulness towards me, I am going to bless him. I am going to give him this promise. There is no dependency on man. There's no dependency on his own abilities. It's completely based on what God will do. This is an unconditional promise that God's giving Abram. It's totally undeserved. There's nothing that he could do to earn this. God is just willingly giving up this promise to him. And as a result, there's no mediator in between because there's no, nobody who needs to because God is the highest name by which someone can promise by. God has promised him these things. And we know that in this situation, God kept true to his word. We know that God ultimately did bless him. He became a great nation. We ultimately, we look around the world and as a result of God's promise, the world has been populated. We see tons of people. Ultimately, if you trace back a lineage, you would see that it ultimately results in that, in God's blessing and God's promise. God kept his word ultimately, too, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who provided a way of salvation so that sinful men like us could come to know him, who could say, be saved by faith alone in him. And if God stayed true to Abram and was able to make him great and make his descendants multiplied, and if God was faithful in securing uh, salvation for us, and he was able to stay true on his word uh, for our eternal souls, how much more so can we trust him with everything else in our lives? How much more so can we trust him for our daily provisions, for food, for uh, work, for housing, for anything else in life? It pales in comparison. If God is uh, able to stay true on his word about our eternal security and able to make sure that is in place, we can trust him with anything else in life. So going back to uh, the passage, we pick up in verse 21. It says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. And the quick answer is no. It's not against the law. It's not against the promises of God. God's promise to Abraham and his descendants was not changed, it was not voided, it was not un gotten rid of or anything like that. The law simply showed us that we are sinful and as a result we need a Savior. God's promises were not nullified. The salvation offer is still available. And we read in, uh, in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy that this is still God's desire. It's still God's desire uh, it says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
That's God's desire for you, to realize that the law condemns you, to realize that you, on your own ability, cannot save yourself, to then, realizing this, place your faith in Christ's full payment on the cross for your sins. The law is not against God's promises. And praise God that it doesn't change God's promises either or annul it. He is still waiting for anyone to come and receive that salvation that he offers. In the second part of Galatians 21, it says, For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been given by the law. The law, it could not give life because everyone was condemned by the law. The law, like I said, simply showed us that we are fallen humans who are unable to keep this law. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No man even comes close to God's holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. No man can honestly say to themselves, I've kept the law, I've obeyed it fully. No one can say those things. But Paul is saying here, if hypothetically, if man were able to keep the God's law fully, if man was able to stand before God and be righteously and stand righteous in obeying God's law, then salvation would have been by the law. And therefore, there would be no need for Jesus Christ to come to this world and to die for sinners because there was another way of salvation there would have been if people could honestly be righteous before God based on keeping the law. But again, we know through time, God has tried man through the law, and time and time again, man has found to be a failure, unable to keep God's law. And so as a result... Uh, thinking about how Jesus Christ had to die on the cross, thinking of how weak we were to keep the law, I believe uh, Paul wrote in Romans 8, thinking about these things, saying, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God, knowing that the law could not produce holy living, knowing that we were weak in the flesh, knowing that we were without strength to obey it, intervened. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh to take on our punishment, which ultimately made a way of salvation for the whole world if they just believed in him. And so when we realize this, we realize that justification then can only be by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it cannot be through keeping the law. In Galatians uh, 22 and 23, we read, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And um, in this verse, is very interesting. The word um, in the verse 22 says, confined under sin. The law confined us as sinners. And as a result, being confined under sin, it then prepared a way and made us ready for the faith, um, preparing us for uh, salvation based on faith alone. And someone might say, well, the law was one way of testing man. The law simply showed us you know, a set of rules. We weren't able to keep it. It was a little bit difficult. Maybe if God had tried a different way, maybe if God had used a different method, 
then man would have been shown himself righteous before God. Man would have been able to prove himself to have a righteous standing before God. And so, in fact, God, through the different circumstances, through different dispensations, if you will, um, tried man under different, uh, different ways, different um, administrations, and tested them. He first tested them in innocence. He tested them. Man would say, well, if God put man... If God put man into a perfect scenario, a perfect world, we would have shown ourselves faithful to him. We would have shown ourselves obedient to him. And yet we know shortly after Adam and Eve were placed there, they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sinned before God. Even in a perfect scenario where God was uh, walking among them, yet they, fall, they fell away from God. And someone would say, well, okay, well, that didn't work. But if man has a moral compass, if man was left up to his own conscience we would oh, then oh, obey God. That would be a far easier test. And again, we know that in the days of Noah, man was left up to his own conscience to decide what is good, what is right. And we know the conclusion of that in Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That is the result of leaving man up to their own moral compass, their own conscience, if you will. God then, after the flood, tried man under human government, saying, scatter among the earth, multiply, and again, man decides, let's build a tower to Babel, let's reach the heavens, let's receive a way to heaven, let's try and, and get there on our own terms. And again, God says, no, that is not the way I'm going to allow you to. So we confuse the languages, and they ultimately scattered from there. And someone else would say, well, what if God just gave a promise? What if he just said, this is the way in which I will bless you? Depends nothing on man. If God had a chosen people and he was just with them the whole time, blessing them along the way, nothing depended on them, we would believe him, we would follow him, we would be righteous before him. And yet even when you have a chosen people, which God had said he would bless, that he said he would multiply and increase, said he would ultimately send a savior through, we know that even as they're escaping from Egypt and, and, uh, and leaving that, they say, we wish we were back in Egypt. It was better in those days. And they, again, refuse God's plan to allow them escape from these people. And time and time again, if you look through that whole period of time, man is shown to be unfaithful to God. And today, as we're looking at the law, you would say, well, the law should be easy. Just follow these set of rules. We'll follow it. And we'll keep and show God that we are righteous before him by keeping him. And again, unable to. So then you think, well, okay, that didn't work. Well, what if God was able to try man under a time where nothing was dependent on the law, where it was just solely based on putting our faith in Jesus Christ? He's done all the work for us. Let's just have a time where faith alone, realizing that we're sinners and having to trust Jesus Christ for our salvation is the way. Maybe that would be an easier way and, and people would come to know the Lord. And yet even today, the vast majority don't even want to hear the name of Jesus Christ, let alone make him their savior. We know that the vast majority of people would rather choose anything else except Christ, even though he's done everything for them. They would rather try and somehow earn their way to heaven, somehow prove themselves righteous enough. Again, disobedient to Christ, even when he's done all the work for them. 
And lastly, someone would say, well, all those things have failed. What if God were just to reign on the earth? We don't have just rulers anymore. We don't have anyone in power who's righteous. What if we had a righteous ruler who reigned, let's say, a thousand years even? Let's say that Christ reigned for a thousand years. And there will be a time where that will happen. And there is peace on the earth. Then we would follow Christ. Then we would obey him. Then we would show ourselves that we could be obedient. And yet we know this will happen after the rapture. And shortly after this thousand-year reign, Satan will be released. And again, man will fall away from Christ. They will disobey him. And really the point I bring up all these things is to show you that, first of all, man, time and time again, throughout the entire history of the world being in existence, has failed. They are sinners through and through. They've been confined to sin. And second of all, that justification has been and always will be by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That there is no other means in which a person can be saved. Every single dispensation, if I went through it and actually had the time to show you it, you would see that time and time again, faith is the way of salvation. God made a way in Noah's day, that ark, through faith that they believed. You see in, in Abram's day, he uh, allowed, um, through just believing in him, and it says, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So in verse 22, we, we read this word that the scripture has confined all under sin. And the word, if you look at the, the root of it, actually, it means this idea of, uh, of like fishermen who use a giant fishing net and then includes the fish, a school of fish really, on all sides. It, uh, another word would be to completely shut up, basically, inside. And really God's purpose in bringing all this up is to show on every single angle, every single side, that man is shut up in sin. Man is enclosed, confined to sin. And it really, it's to show that man cannot save themselves. Man needs a savior. And God, trying to make this as clear as possible, says to anybody who still has questions in their mind, if they somehow think that maybe there's an exception for me. God says in Romans chapter 3, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. God has shut up the, the possibility of somehow man being good enough, of somehow being righteous enough before God. What if uh, I told you, uh, Matt, that you have cancer, that you, uh, you need to go with me and we're going to go and get some radiation done and we'll do chemotherapy. Um, we'll, we'll do that right now if, if you want. Would you, would you go with me? Would you, would, you, would you take me up on that? Yeah, you probably, yeah, yeah you, probably, you probably wouldn't. You probably would think, well, I, I, I want to know for sure that I have these things. I, I don't believe you. And how would you even know that? I, I know my body pretty well. I think I would be on top of those things. But what if instead I said, well, Matt, I know you have cancer. And right now I'm going to go take you down to the clinic. We're going to do some tests. I'm going to get some blood work. We're going to do a biopsy of that area. We're going to then uh, do some imaging. And I'll, and I'll show you. And if every time, what if I showed you definitively that in every circumstance, positive in your blood test, positive on the biopsy, positive in all the x-rays and the MRIs and all those things. What if I showed you positively, would you be convinced that you have? 
Yeah. And that's the thing. You wouldn't realize, you wouldn't want to take action. Nobody would want to take action by getting chemotherapy, radiation, or any of those kind of treatments unless they knew definitively that they really have a situation. They really have a concern on hand. And just like you wouldn't receive treatment unless you knew positively that you needed it, in the same sense, you have to be convinced that you have a need before you seek out treatment. God wanted to show man that they needed help. He wanted to show man that they needed a savior. And so he definitively showed them that they are sinners and that they need help. And as a result, until God could prove to man that they were sinners, they would never realize their need for Jesus Christ. They would never realize their need for a savior. So God, time and time again, we might think it's overkill, but God wanted to show man time and time again that they needed a sinner, that they needed a savior, and that they are sinners. So the law, again, confines us. We're sinners. We are kept under guard, if you will, by the law. And that is until the Christian faith came. Faith in the good news that Christ has come to this world to die for sinners, to be buried, to rise again, and now to be ascended in heaven. Faith that sinners like you and I can come before God on our own, not based on our own merit or anything like that, but solely based on what Jesus Christ has done and be saved and accepted based on that way. Faith now is ushered in. And in the last two verses of this section, we read, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. When I was in middle school, I, I struggled a lot with algebra, and I'm not really sure why, but math was always a really difficult subject for me. And I would spend um, probably half of my lunches uh, throughout middle school and high school in my teacher's uh, room. And she would teach me uh, through the math problems that I had for the homework that night, or uh, we would go over test corrections together. We would, um, we would just go over kind of formulas and, and when to use them and, and how to use them effectively. And she would teach me the principles of math, the laws of it, and I was not I don't know, I just had to go back so many times because I just didn't seem to get it. But she tutored me faithfully throughout probably at least two years of math uh, until I finally understood and was able to go on from that. And just like we have tutors in our everyday life, um, whether it be through algebra or whether it be through other areas of our lives, in the same sense, um, the law was our tutor to us. The law taught us at least at least three things. The first thing it taught us is that, A, we are sinners. Through and through, we are sinners. God tells us, do not do this, we do it. He says, do not covet, we covet. It says, do not lie, and we lie. Through and through, the law shows us like a mirror that we are sinners. We are disobedient before God. Second thing that it shows us is that God is holy. When we look at God's law and what he expects of us, when we look at um, how perfect it is and how righteous his ways are, we realize in comparison to his ways, 
We are so wicked. We are so disobedient to him. And finally, the law teaches us that we need atonement for our sins. We need a savior. We need someone who could keep the law perfectly and fulfill it. We needed someone who could die in our place, someone who was sinless, someone who was holy, someone who was righteous in every single aspect. And the law, it points us to Christ. It says in, in the end of uh, verse 24 that the, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That's really the whole purpose of the law. If you, if you don't get anything else out of it, remember that the law brought us to the point of absolute hopelessness. Brought us to the point of hopelessness in ourselves, in our abilities to save ourselves. So that we would ultimately look to Jesus, <clears throat> our only hope of salvation, and realize that faith in him alone is the only way of salvation. And when we place our faith in him, we are justified. We are declared righteous before God. And we enter into this <clears throat> new relationship with him. And we no longer have a need for a tutor. When I finished college, I began working uh, on the floor as a nurse. And I, you know, no longer went to classes. I no longer spent time in, in the offices to, to get counsel from my teachers. I no longer had a need for a tutor once I moved on because they had taught me as far as they needed to go and now I was prepared. They taught me um, lessons. They taught me valuable insights on how to be a nurse. But ultimately, once I finished school, <clears throat> the need for a tutor was eliminated. I didn't need him anymore. That's not to say, though, that I don't still retain the lessons they taught me. I don't still keep in mind the, the work ethic they taught me, uh, the different things that is crucial still to me today. I still use those things, but I don't have a need like I used to. And in the same sense, we learned from the law. We gained valuable insights into who God is, into his character, and how to demonstrate godly behavior. And yet, when we place our faith in him, we no longer needed a tutor. The tutor has been done away with in that sense. But practically speaking, the law is still applicable today in the sense that we can use it and it has great value in, in when we reach out and evangelize to unbelievers. Um, many people, when they <clears throat> speak to unbelievers, they don't really know where to, to start because... It's just kind of, you know, maybe scary to them or they're fearful of what to say or what will come across. But a lot of people, <clears throat> the very first thing you'll hear out of their mouth when you bring up anything about God or about Jesus is that they'll just start declaring their own righteousness. They'll start declaring that I'm a good person. In general, if God were to weigh out my goods and bads, I would, I would likely go to heaven because, you know, 75% of good is, is still good. And... Uh, they will, they will adamantly say that I am going to heaven. They'll honestly say that based on my abilities, my works, my charities, my good deeds when I was growing up, my church going, whatever it may be, that is going to get me to heaven. And this is really because man is, is basing it based on his own morals, his own standard of goodness, and they don't look at God's law. Um, we, as a church, I know some of you remember this, uh, we used to go to Hayward <clears throat> every August, and we would set up a booth at the Zucchini Festival. And the Zucchini Festival, we had, 
Yeah, it was an interesting festival. It was, we, we were just celebrating a, a vegetable. But <laughs> anyways, <clears throat> it, uh, it, uh, regardless, every year they would allow people to set up booths. And uh, we, at that booth, we set up a booth with the title on it. And it may not be perfectly worded, but it was something along the lines of, are you good enough to get to heaven? Take the good test and find out. Something along those lines. And people would come along and they look at it like, oh, I think I'm good enough. Like, and wanting to validate themselves, wanting to prove to themselves that they were good enough to get to heaven. They would walk into that booth and they were like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out, uh, encouraged, I'm going to come out, knowing for sure that I, I did enough and that I can live the rest of my life however I want. And every single person, every single candidate that we had go into that booth failed the test. They utterly failed. Some people came out with tears even uh, for how badly they had failed that test. And what was that test? The test was the law. We used the Ten Commandments to show people, whether they liked it or not, that before God's holy and perfect standards, that they were not good enough to get to heaven. They could not obtain righteousness. They were on their own abilities, falling short of coming into heaven based on their own works. And today, when we evangelize to unbelievers, we should use the law. We should use it to expose to them who they really are, that they are sinners, that they need a Savior. I mean, think back to your own conversion in your life. I know when I think of my, uh, myself when I was nine years old, going through the Ten Commandments, I realized, not even before we finished the last one, that I was a sinner, I realized that I had broken even at nine years old, seven or eight of them at least. And I realized that even, my, even in my own mind, I thought I was good enough. And you think, how many sins could you even break at nine years old? But I knew in my own mind that I was a sinner destined to hell. And I know in your own life, to some extent, the law was pertinent and it was crucial in convicting you of your own sin, making you realize that you could not come to a saving knowledge of Christ unless you trusted him by faith alone. So when we witness to other people, let's use the law. Let's do it as it was intended to do to convict men of their sin, to show them that God's law demands perfect obedience to it and based on our own inability to follow it, that our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross alone. And this will point them to the only conclusion And that is that justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your word and the truths in it, Lord. I'm thankful that you have spent your time so diligently going through here to show us time and time again that the law cannot save, Lord, and that any other gospel saying that somehow we can be saved by any other means except by faith in you alone is false, Lord, and I I pray that we would stand firm to the truth, Lord, that only through faith alone can we be saved. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone in here has not yet come to the saving knowledge of you, I pray that they would come and trust you today. And I pray that as we go out from today, we would be able to use the law effectively on unbelievers, showing them and pointing them to Christ, that they too might have the same conversion that we did and come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior. I just pray all these things in your name. Amen.